It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the journey. I'm your host, Chris Demix. And this is where I pick the brains of your favorite musicians about their musical paths from the very beginning and throughout the years up until the present. How they got from point A to point B, from their earliest musical memories, that very first song they remember hearing, to who influenced and inspired them. The moment they knew they wanted to be a performer, what led them to their instrument of choice, embarrassing first recordings, performances, and everything in between. When they fully realized this was a pure, unadulterated passion, way more than just a fleeting hobby or something they enjoyed in passing. We go deep and get the inside scoop of how, why, and when this all began. No two stories are the same, each unique to the individuals telling them, and everyone as fascinating as the next. So join me now as we embark on another journey. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Journey. Today, we are joined by guitarist and vocalist for Bowling for Soup, podcaster, solo artist who has a brand new country album, husband, father, and the voice of Chuck E. Cheese, Mr. Jarrett Reddick. Jarrett, how are you, buddy? Man, I'm doing great. It's good to see you, man. How's everything? Everything is, uh, is fantastic. It's, it's, it's really good. And by, by the time this comes out, uh, we're going to have announced our tour together. Yeah, I know. And it's about time. You know, uh, it's, been, <laughs> it's been too long. You know, we were touring together the summer before the world shut down. So, my goodness. I know. Can't wait to get back out there. Well, Same. I want you to take the listeners all the way back. Okay. What was your first musical memory? What moved you? You know, I my parents were pretty musical people, not necessarily instrument or, you know, that kind of thing, in that there was always music going on, always music uh, playing in our house, always music in the car. You know, um, we went to church a lot when I was a kid, so, you know, and but Church of Christ, so it was like a lot of vocal music. Um, so I just kind of always around it and, you know, it's just always something I was pretty enamored by, but I remember when I decided to like actually get into it. I remember the exact day when it, I knew that it was going to be my, if not my whole life, like a big part of my life. And, um, I was in math class. And we were doing speed tests for multiplication. And if you made 100 on it, uh, on the speed test, you got free time. If you didn't, then you had to practice. Well, I got 100, of course, and uh, got free time. And Greg Norman, this kid, had brought his Walkman to school. And I heard Ozzy Osbourne's Crazy Train for the first time. Nice. today 
don't even understand what Ozzy was in 1982. Like he was the Prince <laughs> of Darkness. He was terrifying, you know. And yeah. I just heard this, and I was just I was completely I was freaked out. And so I got Blizzard of Oz and Shout at the Devil. I got those albums on the same day. And forever, I I just I wanted to be Tommy Lee from that point on. What age was this roughly? So I was uh, around 13, 12, 13 years old um, when all this things when this started. And up until then, you know, I liked music. I mean, I but I was into whatever my brother listened to. So, you know, if he was listening to Ario Speedwagon, I listened to that. You know, we he was Urban Cowboy came out, so we listened to country for a while. You know, mm-hmm. um, it was it was kind of that whole thing where, you know, John Cougar was was all over the plate, John Cougar Mellencamp and, you know, Michael Jackson, you know, and, and at that point you just sort of listened and you listened to whatever girls listen to, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you know, and, and, uh, but that, that's the day that it changed as far as like, it wasn't just this background thing to me anymore. It, it, at this point, it just became, I just became obsessed with, right. you know, um, this, and not only just music, but this genre of music, just metal um, and hair metal and, and, and all of that from literally from the magazines to the videos to the albums, um, just literally obsessed. Sports didn't matter anymore. I mean, I'd always been into <laughs> sports, yeah. whether, whether it be watching them or playing them. All of a sudden, you know, this that's all I wanted to do. You just reminded me of something. Well, f- first of all, you know, my earliest memories were like playing, you know, holding a tennis racket like a guitar in front oh, of me. Sure. I was yeah. I was young. You yeah. sound like you were a little bit more of a, of a late bloomer. And that's really surprising to me with how music, how musical you are. Yeah. I don't know. I figured it would earlier. You know, we definitely did that that whole thing. I mean, really, you know, I, less than the guitar thing. I mean, really, it's funny. If, if we're going that far back, it was that, you know, all the, this is true, man. I was always into girls, man. I, I, like from literally kindergarten on. Like, I, it, it, <laughs> and it, I was never embarrassed about it. Like, it was, you know, like my kids all still, you know, my, my son is 16 and he's still like, shut up, dad. You know, like. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, third grade, I remember, you know, Kim Burris and Bobby Sue LaVorne and uh, me and Lance Morrell, first uh, drummer of Bowling for Soup, and Monica Humphreys would sing Grease songs during recess. And, you know, like I was Danny and Kim Burris was Sandy. And, you know, like we would do the Grease soundtrack while all the other dudes were out playing soccer, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. I would sort of lip sync to those things and, and do all of that. But it, there really wasn't a desire at all to like do it you know it was it was just more like i you know i knew that i liked music but really it didn't just absolutely grab me by the ears until you know 12 like i said 12 13 and then borderline obsession it's it's funny i i was obsessed from a very early age but it was around i think 12 years old i was still playing little league baseball 11 or 12 yeah i was and and i remember that my moment too where everything changed yeah i remember pitching a game and as i'm pitching as i'm throwing the ball i'm trying to think of the track listing for quiet riots metal health in my head (laughs) (laughs) and it was as if at that very moment and i'm sure you could relate i loved wrestling as a kid i used to go to the parents used to take me to the matches down in fort myers i loved wrestling i loved baseball i loved sports i played it but it was if everything at that moment took a backseat to music. And so right. now you get this Ozzy record, you get this Shout of the Devil record. What from there did you did you want to buy a guitar? Did you So this same kid, Greg Norman, like uh he was 
you know, his brother was about four years older than us, and he was a drummer. And he, Greg had, was real into Kiss. And so his room, you know, in the sixth grade was already like my room would be the year later in the start of junior high, whereas you couldn't even see the paint on the walls. It was so covered in magazines and posters and just clippings of of and of, of rock stars, Kiss and, and, and all of that. Um, he was real into Ozzy and Kiss, but his brother played the drums and had this drum set in his room. And it was this little bitty room. It was basically all a bed and a drum set and this huge rush poster. And I was just like, oh man, I want to be like your brother. I want to get a drum set. So um, that same day, um, we went to this, we used to go to this pawn shop and look around and they had this pair of Promark uh, drumsticks. So I bought these drumsticks and I went home and I asked my dad for a drum set for Christmas and he just laughed, you know, I was like, yeah, right. Well, <laughs> you know, of course, uh, wounded, I limped back to my room and I, I guess I begged enough and I got it. You know, I got a drum set for Christmas, and my parents were actually in AA uh, from the time I was in third grade, and they um, they went to AA with this guy, with this dude, like this old dude that like had played drums, you know, his for bands when when he was you know an adult and. Whatever. I, I don't know that it matters that he was an adult. Anyway, he had played in bands. And, <laughs> and he had played in bands and could play the drums. And so he started coming over to my house um, on a certain night a week after an AA meeting. So we would start at like 930 at night, you know, and uh, my brother would be in the other room just cussing. And you know, he's five years older than me and just thought that this was a complete waste of time and taught me how to play drums. But this dude knew how to do it. So that, you know, it would stick with me forever. He he didn't just teach me to play the drums. He he actually made me learn all the rudiments and taught me wow. snare drum and all of this stuff first. Like he had the insight to to actually teach me all of this stuff. And it it's it's so Chris, it's so wax on, wax off, man. It's so like paint the sand the floor and all of that, where cause you're learning all that and all you want to do is play the drums and that's it. And then it's like a year after you've like started playing drums and you think, why did I have to learn all that stuff? And all of a sudden you need to crash this certain cymbal with your left hand. And so you do a paradiddle to that floor tom and bam on that cymbal. And you're just like, oh, well, it all makes sense now, you know. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it, it, it's crazy how, you know, all of that stuff. And then you start to go, OK, well, now a ratamacue would be it would work this way. And. And um, so applying all of that to the drum set, I was really, really lucky uh, that, that that he had set me up that way. And plus, then it, it got me into honors band, you know, all, all through school. And, um, you know, I played in um, in orchestra. I played the timpanis and snare drum and the marching band and all of that. And um, so, could you still get around on a drum kit these days? I can still I've, do okay. Yeah, I can. I've still never, I've never heard you play, and that's yeah. that's so crazy. Most of the musicians, my friends that I've talked to over the years. They all wanted to be a drummer, at yeah. least at first. They wanted to bang that noise. I never did because I just no? in instinctually knew that I would suck. I get behind a drum set. I'm the worst drummer <laughs> in the world. Okay, you know, it's a big lead singer thing, actually. You know, like uh, <laughs> no, it really. It's like uh, you know, it's our our uh, you know, Stacy Jones from American Hi-Fi is is a drummer, and uh, you know, Steven Tyler was a drummer, and Don yeah. Henley is a drummer, and you know, it just it's it's crazy how many. How many singers, you know, played drums first, or at least that became one of their instruments that they played, and 
and and then it it just maybe it's just this cry for attention. You know, maybe it's like I'm going to be the loudest, but wait a minute, now that guy's got a microphone. That's yeah. a lot of power. You know, like I want to be I <laughs> and, want that. And and he's standing in front. Exactly. That's a lot of that he, that guy's getting a lot of attention. You yeah. know, and that that could definitely be it. But you know, there's Ta- a Tommy Lee's roller coaster wasn't invented yet to fly out in the front of the crowd. No, so. no, but I did see that just a couple years after, you know, starting cuz I wanted to be Tommy Lee, you know, like it you know, you look back on those first two albums and the videos or whatever, there's no cooler band that's ever existed than Motley Crue, and I would fight that to the death. And They were larger than life. Larger than life. They're the original gangster rap. Like, they're, like, you know what I mean? Like, they, they were already in hot tubs with chicks and money and stuff, like, before even rappers were doing that. It was like, they were just <laughs> as, they just, it's crazy how huge they made themselves. And all by design. And we all bought it. Like, I, I bought it. And I bought everything. <laughs> I, I, I bought it, you know? At, at what point At what point now, you said you were in a marching band, you were playing yeah. the timpanis. Yeah. At what point did did, uh, did you say either, A, I want to be a singer or I want to be a guitar player or both? Yeah. So, you know, um, I'm not sure. I'm sure it was probably like this in your town, too. Uh, but, you know, being in bands, we were it was pretty incestuous. Like this guy would go be in that band, and this guy would go be in that band, and we would all, you know, bands would break up, and you'd borrow this guy and all this. So I was kind of in one of the two or three bands in town that was really, really good, um, and I was pretty lucky. I was pretty good at the drums, actually. Um, and you know, back then playing metal, like I could do all the double bass stuff, and you know, I could play like Anthrax songs, and not everybody could do that, and. So I was always in a band with dudes that were older than me, like 18-year-old kids. And so, you know, I, I I kind of always had got to be in the bands that were really, really good. So fast forward to we kind of have this band that's supposed to be, you know, the bomb diggity dog in town. And, you know, our singer moves away and we don't have a singer. And uh, we're, we're actually getting heavier at the time anyway. So it's, we're kind of starting to do more like Slayer, Testament, um, Obituary, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, our bass player was actually a really good drummer. And we knew a dude that could play bass because he had been in our band before playing bass. And I was just like, I don't know. I'll just sing until we find somebody, you know, and then we'll just figure it out. And uh, that's kind of it. I was like 17 at the time, and really, I never, I never really got back behind the drums in a serious way ever. So, really, my drum career was about five years, and <laughs> which is crazy because I'm, I'm not bad. Like I can sit behind the. T- I mean, I could get on stage and play a song with you guys, and I, and like you, you wouldn't know that I have that I, you know, haven't really played in a long time. And oh uh, yeah, well. <laughs> uh, so at this point, like were you guys, it's hard to, it's hard to play places when you're not 18. Okay? Right. You can't get into most yeah. bars. Were, were you right. playing gigs, doing talent shows? Where were you playing? We were pretty, I, again, I was pretty lucky because everybody in my band was older than me. And so we were getting to play in clubs, but we weren't allowed to ever go into the bar. So like we could play, but we'd literally be outside the back door and it'd be like, <laughs> come set up and you'd go and you'd set up your stuff. And then you'd have to leave out the back door that you came in. And so, yeah, um, you know, talent shows, um, couple of backyards. I mean, quite frankly, really back then it was just all about rehearsal and being as good as you could possibly be. I mean, you know, that's that, that we were so, good like the you know and the guitars were so intricate and we did all that stuff they did all that stuff what, what was the note. band called terminal seasons 
Ter- I the, love it. Yeah. Do, do you have do you do you have a demo of Terminal Seasons you could share with the listeners? I um could probably dig something up that <laughs> uh, that you know I I'm sure that I probably can. But the problem with finding demos when you're our age, Jared, yeah. is that most of them are on cassette. Yeah. Well, also, we didn't do, we didn't ever record because nobody would write songs. This is getting into the next question you're going to ask me. Yeah. Which, I, which is going to be why I picked up the guitar. And that's because these dudes didn't want to write songs. Well, I'm in this metal band, Terminal Seasons. We're playing and finally doing shows and all of this. And then I went to college and I went to college in the same town. So I was still in this band, but I met this kid and his name was Shrub Roundtree. And, uh, I, we hit it off at, at, uh, we had to go to this thing called spirit days to get you, instead of an orientation, you did this thing called spirit days. And if you did that, then you didn't have to take this certain class. It's kind of dumb, but anyway, it worked. Basically it was what it was, was to familiarize you with the campus and get you some friends and all of this. So you're sort of set up to go to college and then you're away from mom and dad and all that. Okay. And so I meet this kid, and and he liked a couple of the same bands that I did, and Nirvana was breaking at the time, and uh, Soundgarden and all of that stuff was starting to happen. But this kid let me hear The Descendants, and then he let me hear The Ramones, and then he let me hear Green Day, like early Green Day. I mean, we're talking like the seven inches that he had like put on cassette, mm-hmm. you know? And i just like, I remember hearing The Descendants for the first time and going, wait a minute, so this is exactly what we're doing. It's just he's singing about girls and farts, like stuff that he knows about. Like, I don't, you know, because back then, if you're in a metal band back then, like you had to get like a medical dictionary to write lyrics, you know, like you couldn't, you couldn't just go like, you know, I was walking down the street and I saw this girl, you know, like back then it was just like creating a life to destroy, you know, it's like, it just, yeah, that's, it's just so different. And then I God, I heard these lyrics and then, then, you know, you hear Green Day and this band called the Parasites that I really loved and Screeching Screeching Weasel and, you know, and I was just all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, so these guys are playing fast. The guitars are loud and heavy, but I can actually play this stuff if I want to on pretty much any instrument. So I just got a guitar and I was just like, I'm just going to start writing songs, you know, and that pretty much meant at the time that I was not in Terminal Seasons anymore because I, this was it. So it was almost like my life had changed twice. That first time I heard Ozzy and then when I heard The Descendants, it was literally like, it was a hard left, dude. Like it was literally like, oh, I don't do metal anymore. It's crazy. I have the kind of the same story. I didn't pick up the guitar till I was 18. I was a yeah. late bloomer. Yeah. And it sounds like the same thing with you. Yeah, but this is uh, early 20s. Yeah. I wasn't uh, 18 in 1984 trying to learn uh, uh, Eddie Van Halen and Ingve Malmsteen exactly. licks. I was now on a playing field with guys that were, were basically playing three chords. And I went, aha. I, that was my aha moment. First, the bad news. 
SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. So if you go back to like the stuff that we listened to in the 80s, you mentioned Quiet Riot. I don't think people uh, – a, a guy explained this to me one day, and, and I was like, oh, my God, that's so true. People don't understand that guys like D. Snyder and Kevin Dubrow, like dudes that sound like that, are the best singers in metal. And the heart, it's so hard to sing that stuff because they make it sound so easy. But uh, go, yeah. go try and do Come On, Feel the Noise at karaoke and then come at me. Go. So you think my singing's out of time. It makes me money. is a very hard song to sing and i you know what i have a i have a pretty good range right like that's hard (laughs) and so you couldn't sing that stuff you know and then then you had the you know but we were listening to like tnt and oh and and for those that don't know uh tony harnell from tnt is up there with the the greats oh Uh, yeah definitely I mean, he can sing like 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 Steve Perry, which a lot of those guys painted themselves into a corner. That was the other thing about yeah, punk rock that I loved. Exactly. I went, Wait a second, I can sing in my range. Exactly, because, man. You you get up to being our age now. You know, yeah. uh, 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 middle aged guys, you can't sing. None of those guys. They're all down tuning now. They can't. Yeah. They can't. You can't expect to sing that high anymore. There's a couple of them that still can, but it's not many. And and you know, but so that's that goes in hand in hand with it. The, I couldn't play those guitar parts. I could not play those drum parts. Uh, I could play the drum parts. Sorry, I couldn't play those bass parts. You know, I didn't even, actually didn't didn't even know how to play bass. But uh, you know, I couldn't. I could sing those songs, kinda. You know, like it'd be like the thing where it'd be like, okay, the new Queensrÿche album is out. Which songs can you sing, Jarrett? We'll work those up. You know, kind of thing. <laughs> like, well, I can do "Don't Trust the Needle." You know, I, uh, the needle lies or whatever. Uh, but I can't do Queen of the Reich, you know, because who can? You know, no one can hit the high note at the top of that song. Yeah, you know, so, it's uh, it's crazy. Around this time now, you hear yeah. Descendants, and and this is like the second switch that goes off for you. The first yeah. one being being in the '80s with the Motley Records, and now the next switch goes. Yeah, are you starting to write songs for Bowling for Soup? And how close was this to 1994? Because I believe that was the first Bowling for Soup uh, independent record, correct? Yeah. So the, so this is early '90s. Um, this is like '90 90 to '92 when all of this is going down, and 
in 92, I actually started a band with that dude that let me hear The Descendants and Lance, the original drummer for Bowling for Soup, um, who I had known since I was four years old. We had been best buddies, you know, on and off since then. And that pretty much, that band was called Cool Fork and uh, with a little C and an exclamation point at the end, which starts the whole Bowling for Soup with the exclamation points thing. You can, you can As bands did in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so Cool Fork and uh, that, that laid the foundation of everything. And so that band was, was instrumental in my songwriting in that I really wasn't a lyricist yet. But Shrub would write words, and then I would just put music to it. The cool thing was is that we listened to the what what the Descendants became was the, a, a band called All, and arrangements could be just wacky. Like there didn't have to be any song structure at all. Like you, yeah. I, it was just verses didn't sound the same. Like it, it just the way that those dudes wrote, it was a ride, you know. And so I was like, well, I can do this, and so I would, you know. When I started writing songs, I didn't have any rules. So it it very early in my songwriting uh, just taught me that there you don't have to follow this structure. You don't have to do this. It doesn't have to go intro, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, chorus, out. You know, it doesn't have to do that, um, which I think I'm lucky to have to have learned that. Um, mm-hmm. Because the only other way you learn that is if you you heard the Beatles and then you started writing songs instantly. If you listen to everybody who is uh, influenced by the Beatles, then you have all the structures already there, and you're going, okay, it goes first course, first course. Yeah. So yeah, two years of that band, and then some of those songs then did become Bowling for Soup songs, and um, and so that would have been like the beginning of that. Ninety two would have been the beginning of, uh, and again literally had just started playing the guitar. Like, even in the early days of Bowling for Soup, like, I really didn't know what I was doing. It was very much Mm self-taught. I I didn't even know all the notes or what they were. I I just memorized patterns. So I would just write it, you know, and it'd be the pattern, and I knew. um, I was real good at that thing where you could drop the... Um, if you're doing a power chord on the A and the D string, you could drop that your uh, your ring finger down to the G string, and all of a sudden you're doing an octave thing. Yeah. So that's why Bowling for Soup is so octavey because I I learned that thing. That's all Cool Fork was was just that thing back and forth. Gotcha. And so Bowling for Soup happens, and I'm just like, well, I could do this octave thing. We'll just do this octave thing all the time, you know. And uh, that became a big part of of our songs. So by this point. You kind of know what, what what your lot in life's going to be. Uh, you're going to be a musician, whether you are, are going to make money at it, whether you're living on mom's couch. You're going to be a musician. That's how I felt. I, I, I money was not an object. It was where's the next house party? Where's the next case of beer? Yeah. When when can we record again? This is all happening so fast. At what moment in Bowling for Soup yeah. did you have another uh, light bulb go off? You're like, wait a right. second, I. Now I think we could really do this as a career. Was it, was it a show? Was it a reaction to a single you put out? What moment was that? Well, I will tell you, um, I'm gonna, I know that this, this is a short show, so I'm going to do this quick. But while all this stuff in music is going on, life is also happening. Um, I had actually started a business with my girlfriend's dad, 
when I was 17. Uh, and we opened up a toy store and by the time, you know, by the time I was 22 or whatever, we had a full-time toy store that was open year round. And then we'd open up like eight other stores at Christmas time in other cities and we'd bring them all back. It's kind of like, um, that's awesome. That Halloween store that pops up every year. We would do that with toys every year. So that business went under when category killers came in, Toys R Us and all of that. And Nintendo became more popular than bikes. We couldn't compete. And so I had to do something else. All this time, I'm going to college, by the way, uh, starting in 90. Uh, and so around 94, Toy Store closes. I graduate from college, and I started this that my partner, the, this dude's brother, moved to town, and we started a home building business because this guy was a home builder. So I learned how to, we built three houses from the ground up, and that business went belly up uh, because we, we built a spec home. And uh, about two months before we went on the market, they put a coin-operated car wash about two blocks away. And it was just, that was the end of that deal. Like oh. people, it just profited by. <laughs> yeah. So final straw, I'm coming out of that and I do a summer of building above-ground swimming pools. And uh, so I, I've, I've always been super entrepreneurial. And so I build above-ground swimming pools for this whole summer. I employ all my friends and all these businesses and all this stuff. End of that summer, we're in 96. And... We play a show in Abilene, Texas, Bowling for Soup. So we're two years in, about two and a half years in. and Right at two years, actually. We play the show in Abilene, Texas. We open up for this band called The Hunger. And oh, we had been, I remember them. Yeah. yeah. We had been play, they had that song, Vanishing Cream. We're there, and... We had managed to get a couple of songs on this radio station there. And we play this show. It's it's sold out. And we had played Abilene a few times. But just the reaction of this crowd and them singing our words and just all of this stuff. And here I am with two college degrees and three companies that had either gone under or that just we weren't doing it anymore. I was tired of responsibility. I'd never really been able to go out and just be and and I was just like it it that night I got off stage I threw up in a trash can we went upstairs to this makeshift dressing room that they had set up in this conference room and I pulled the guys aside and I said I think we can do this and they're like okay and I'm like no I'm serious I think if you guys trust me and you just do everything that I say and we all put this first I think we can do it like we can do this and everybody's like yeah okay and that was the commitment. And the commitment was band comes first, no more birthday parties, no more anniversaries, no more funerals. You band was first. This is what we do. And that seems harsh, but to the listener, if you've got four guys and you add a tech and you have, you know, everybody goes to two birthday parties uh, uh, that are on weekends a year and you you know you, or and then you go to four weddings and you do this or whatever that's a lot of nights that you can't play so yeah, those are yeah. gone rule number 2 if we're asked to go to an after party we go doesn't matter if you're sick or you have to work in the morning if if we are asked to go to an after party you go why because if we had 20 people at that show and we go to a party the next time we come we're going to have 40 people at that show and that just goes on and on and on from there was to the commitment to the band. And, you know, it, it did work. It took a long time. You know, yeah. I mean, we didn't we didn't sign our deal until 99 and didn't have a hit until 2003. Um, so it was in a van from uh, 94 to 2003. 
Well, I was going to say, I, I think, again, everyone I've talked to has that moment. And, and, and yeah. that's awesome. That that was your moment. And then you had the talk. I remember having the talk. I think yeah. we can do this, guys. Yeah. You get out. You get your deal in 99. Early 2000s, you have massive hits with 1985, Girl All the Bad Guys Want. And you just, year after year after year, you're still out there doing it. Yeah. What, if you could look back, and mm-hmm. it could be even before Bowling for Soup, what is yeah. your proudest moment? Well, the proudest moment uh, is pretty easy for me, and that is in 2003, on uh, January the 7th, my ex-wife was in labor. They were about to put the epidural in her back, and uh, the phone in the in the room rings, and uh, the nurse answers it. She goes, uh, Mr. Reddick? And I go, yeah, I mean, I, just hang up. I don't, I, what, uh, <laughs> this guy says he needs to talk to you. You know, I'm like, okay, so I pick up the phone, I'm like, this better be good. I'm in the middle of some serious shit. And uh, <laughs> yeah. voice on the other line is our manager at the time. And he says, uh, hey, man, I, I'm i sorry to bug you, but I just needed to tell you, like, you just got nominated for a Grammy. And I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. And I hang up, right? And so my my ex-wife is crying, like, who would call right now or whatever? I'm like, I, apparently we got nominated for a Grammy. And she's like, what? And the nurse is like, oh, my God, this is crazy. Are you going to go? What are you going to wear or whatever? And I'm like, guys, we got an epidural needle to put in here. Everybody, let's focus. You know? Yeah. Um, regroup, regroup. My daughter, Emma, was born um, a few hours later. And uh, I went down, you know, we had, we had had a really long night. And I uh, went down to have something to eat in the cafeteria, and I opened up, uh, for some reason, <laughs> so weird, the Dallas Morning News. I never read the paper, and this is before smartphones. And uh, the Dallas Morning News is sitting there, and I, it was like Grammy nominees. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. You know, I'll just open this up. And, I, you know, my first child had just been born, and my band got nominated for a fucking Grammy on the same day. You know, and so it was like awesome. there in the paper. And I'm just like, so... <laughs> It's other, you know, there's so many of those highs, you know, we've done so much. We've seen the world so many, we played for the troops in places that people can't, won't ever be able to go, you know, people don't even know exist actually a couple of them. We've met our heroes, man. We've met our fucking, (laughs) dude. Yeah. I text with D Snyder and Sebastian Bach. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's, it's, you know, and again, like, yeah, that's the thing right now. My favorite band in the world, the descendants like I have two of their phone numbers, you know what I mean? Like it's like you've toured with them for Christ's sake, you know? Like, I know I, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Stefan it, like, Stefan plays on my new country record, by the way. I like, know it's, it's so it's cool, crazy. Why don't you come back home to me? And so you're right. Like when your heroes become your peers, you're just like, it's fucking, you know, the weirdest thing part about that is that time that I saw you guys play with the descendants, by the way, uh, not that long ago for, for, four or so years ago here in Dallas. And then, and, uh, so Stefan comes out afterwards and, and then here's the, I'm talking to Stefan who I've known for years. And uh, he just goes, Hey, is it cool if my kids come take a picture with you or whatever? And I'm like, do you realize how fucking crazy that is to ask (laughs) me that? You know, know. it's just so nuts. I know. I, I, I still get nervous around those guys. It's weird. They're my friends, but I see them and I'm like, 
oh, there, there, there's Bill. It's, it's, yeah, it's, exactly. it's amazing. Yeah. Well, in closing, I just want to say congratulations on all your continued success. Thanks, Thank man. you for being my friend. Oh, man. Um, you are one of the busiest people in rock and roll. I, I totally respect you, totally support you, and I can't, uh, I can't wait to get back out there and rock with you. Man, me too. And you know, I feel the same way about you. You know, I mean, you're you're one of the first people that ever took up for us, uh, in a in just the weirdest sort of way that that day in Dallas. I'll never forget that. And then to be able to tour together and to call you friend, um, and I respect the shit out of you. Congratulations on you know the the podcast and the, and then the uh, satellites from the podcast. I know it's going really well and appreciate it. It's it's funny. I feel like. People who work really hard attract other people that work hard, and we all feed off of one another. And so I think that's why you and I get along so well. Absolutely. Well, thanks a lot, everybody, uh, for sitting in with us, and we'll see you on the next journey. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts.